2: All right, everybody, welcome to West Point, Mississippi, once again. And it's Thanksgiving week, It's so uh, we've got a lot to be thankful for, that's for sure. But here we are in the uh, home of Mossy Oak. We're in the Gamekeeper Studio. Hercules sitting over here. Oh, Hercules. When uh, we're missing one, Lanny is uh, somewhere. I think he's on the line right now as we speak. Right? I'm
1: not missing. I'm just in hot pursuit, man. Yeah, well, uh, sad, yeah we're busy working down here. Well, gamekeeping. Gamekeeping. Yeah. It's Gamekeeper Week. What are y'all doing? Uh, we actually got uh, the kids down here. We got a couple guys from the office. got all the boys in town, and we are uh, looking for places to hang stands. We got uh, all the kids in tow. Uh, and going through the all oh, the ropes, we just found a white oak flat, uh, and we're really excited about that. But we're fixing to uh, hang some stands, so we're hanging ladders with uh, lock-ons right beside them, so uh, we can hunt in here as a family unit. So super excited about that.
2: Well, let me tell you this: if you had turned on the new Onyx feature that shows you where mass-producing trees are, you would have known right where that flat was. <laughs>
1: You're exactly right. Well, let me tell you what. we Onyx is our best friend out here right now. We were looking the at. S has marked every trail, every tree. I can't get him to, even to drive straight because he's looking down at the screen the whole time. We talk about how dangerous texting and driving is. Uh, looking at those screens, on it and driving a four wheeler are rough too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dudley found that uh, that layer on the app today, and I think he's been down that rabbit hole pretty good ways.
3: Yeah, it's it's really cool,
2: and uh, I tell you what,
3: what you, what you guys are doing down there with the kids is that's how to do it. You know, instead of them showing up and you know here climb into this shooting house. You're teaching them well, how then, to find the deer, and and. Hey, Dadley, that, that,
1: that's what it was all about for us. I'm glad you said that.
3: So right. you're, you know, you're teaching them about trees, and you know how to find the hot spots, and.
1: Hey, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Just you know, because you're right. You get a lot of times you are just in a rush of life, and you grab your child up and you go, and they don't even know why you're sitting there in the first place. So uh, we're lucky enough we got a little time around here around Thanksgiving, and nothing like walking around with your, with your crew in the woods and explaining stuff. Uh, looking at a big, giant white oak right now, thinking of you, Dudley. That's all. Awesome. your name all over it. <laughs> uh, y'all flushed any ducks yet? Uh, I can't. I'm, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about feathers. I can tell you all about fur uh, that you want to know, but I've been sworn to secrecy as part of the uh, opportunity to come down here. We've seen a lot of deer. Okay. Good answer. Uh-huh. I get it. I get
2: uh-huh. it. <laughs> well, look, so today's podcast, we're going to, in a way we're, gonna, you know, this is all about ducks. Um, we, we've got a guest that we'll be calling in a little while named Phil Conkey. If I'm pronouncing that right, I think I am, but he's with, uh, he's a great waterfowl photographer and he works for Bandit. He helps with their content, but he is an avid waterfowler.
3: And I, I would venture to say that a photographer is probably more suited uh, you know to help teach us about decoy placement or or you know even deer hunting I mean because it's it's just so much more difficult you know you got to get a lot of photos and I mean you you know like Tess Jolly and, and uh, some of these other photographers that, that are getting these amazing photos they got to know what they're doing so
2: yeah, that, yeah, they do. So let's keep this thing moving. What about blood on the biologic? What have you seen this week, Dudley? Well, uh, a buddy that has been
3: buying trees from us for a while, his name's Brendan Compton, killed a really nice buck up in Kansas. And then uh, one of my friend's sons, Leo Quick, got a really nice buck down around Port Gibson, Mississippi a couple of days ago. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's wearing full bottom land.
2: Oh, good for him!
3: Congrats yeah. to Leo.
2: Yeah, and well, Tom Sega sent me a picture the other night. The guy that owns Duluth Pack, mm-hmm. and he he went old school. You know, we talked about we did not talk about the thirty thirty back a few episodes and ago. he broke out his thirty thirty and killed a really nice Minnesota buck. And uh, and then I, I got to say that Jim told me that you see oh, the my deal? It's, it's two hundred and thirty inch typical. Have you have you seen that?
3: It's, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but, I mean, the G2s, the g three. I mean, everything is just amazing. It'll be interesting game. to see where it ends up after
2: it nets, because it may be one yeah, of the Yeah, Bobby, that's some kind of world record? It, I think it's going to be one of the top few up there. It's got to be, if it nets uh, what, what everybody seems to think it will. I'd love to hear some of his habitat tips sometime. He, he Yeah, he plants a lot of biology. i tell you what. That.
1: He's in the right He's in the right zip code. He must find a lot of biologics. That's right.
3: Stuff's dropping. And, uh, look, you can tag us, uh, tag us blood on the biologic, and, and we'll be able to find it on social media to share it.
2: Yeah, we sure can. That's a lot of fun. So uh, before we call Phil, I'm looking at Mac, and, of course, Mac is probably texting as we get ready to go here. But have you got a commercial for us, Mac?
0: I do. I mean, since we're talking about waterfowl, I mean, you, you got to talk about Browning shotguns. Uh, I've got my Maxis II Wicked Wing Shattergrass ready to rock and roll in about two days.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I've got old. I've got a, a few years ago when they brought that humpback, the humpback back. I got one, and I absolutely love it. The A five. They, they are such good guns. I still shoot my Browning B2000
3: humpback that my dad gave me. Yeah. And uh, now my uncle gave me um, an A5 from the 80s that
0: had never been shot before. And I can't wait to play with that
2: one. Well, that sounds like a good go.
0: And the, and the cool thing about it is, I mean, when you think about duck hunting, you think about water, you think about cold temperatures, and that doesn't normally go well with a lot of guns. But, I mean, having the reliability of the Browning, I mean, that you know day in to day out, you don't have to take a spare gun when you got a Browning. No. You know, I mean, it, it's going to work, it's going to eject the shells, and it, it works.
2: So, and an, another one that we should point out that they have that's just got this really popular, and I would encourage guys to try it, is the Satori. And you can get that dipped in bottom land, it is a great-looking gun. Gun. There's a lot of folks around here have them, and uh, that that is a waterfall waterfowler's gun. For yeah, sure.
3: I believe uh, Neil
2: mm. Neil shoots one, mm. and uh, Chris Paradise shoots one. Yeah, I think there are a lot. And look, I'll go ahead and tell everybody we got Mr. Bill Shug <laughs> sitting in here. He keeps wanting to. <laughs> there All he right. is. Yeah, well, give him the horns. There he is. But uh, there's no telling how many Browning shotguns he has. Well, what they actually have, Dudley, in the over and under is synergy.
4: The synergy. Okay. Yeah. I stand yeah. correct. Right. They're dipped in, in bottom land or in blades. And they are good. That's I'm fortunate enough to have one and after hunting with Chris a time or two and watching how easy it was to unload and never have a word about any kind of gun hanging up, et cetera, it's pretty easy. And with these new shot shells, you really don't need a third shot. Well it just depends on how good a mark you are. Yeah. I think, I think there are times when, I, like the old boy said, why don't you? Why do you shoot three-inch magnums? He said because they don't make them any longer. Well, only shoot.
2: <laughs> why do we not shoot more? Because you can't shoot more. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good way to put it. So yeah, well, look, thank you for bringing up Brownie Mac. That we are so proud to be associated with them. And uh, Mr. Bill, we are glad to have you sitting over here. My pleasure. So, Lanny, are
1: you still there with us? Hey, this is Lanny. I can't get to the phone right now.
2: Well, all right, Richie, would you effort to get Lanny back on the phone if you could, please? In the meantime, while we're waiting to do that, I think we could go ahead and call Phil. Hello. Hey, Phil. How's it going, Bobby? Oh, it's going well. We're having some technical difficulties, but for the most part, it's going pretty good. (laughs) I'm I'm sitting here. I've got Dudley Phelps with me. Hey Phil, okay. we've, got, we've got Bill Sugg, who is the president of Malcy Oak. I mean, he is a really important guy. Yeah, and
5: he—I I know, I know the name,
2: Big Big Duck Hunter. And we've got yeah. Mac Thatcher, who's a big duck hunter, sitting in here. And somewhere we got Richie, who's who's trying to hold all the wires together because we, we lost <laughs> Lanny uh, th- through a technical difficulty. So, importance importance is relative, Bobby. It's <laughs> better to be among good, good friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, Phil. How are you? How, let me let me back up. Let me just say, look, Phil came to us highly recommended as a waterfowl guru. He's up there in the Dakotas, and he he's a waterfowl photographer extraordinaire. So, Dudley, you know if he get, how close he's got to get to ducks to be able to take pictures. So he's got to hide, and he's got to be able to decoy ducks. And, uh, and he also works for Bandit. Now, you, we're all big fans of the Bandit products. Love uh, all uh, their stuff. And uh, Alan Hughes is just a, what a great guy. But all those products are just, they're tremendous products. And they've got the decoys, the greenhead gear, and we've all used them. And so that's kind of what we're here to talk about. But let's hit the horns for Phil, if we could. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so Phil, yeah, Phil. We're excited to have you, and uh, we just wanted to ask you some questions. We, you know, like I said, you came to us uh, highly recommended as being an expert on
5: this subject. Like Bill said, that might be subjective or relative, <laughs> but um, I think in, in certain parts of it, I probably could say I am. I at least have a lot of time and do it. So, well, that's, that is. Uh, that's that's one of the, the keys into becoming an expert on anything. I would think so.
2: Yeah, that's right. Put your 10,000 hours in. And so I, I'm told yep. you're at duck camp right now. Is that true?
5: Well, I was, I had to come home for a couple of days because my dog, my dog has been getting beat up. She's got, um, she got a tangle with a barbed wire fence a few weeks ago that I decided to seem to let it completely heal and she stepped on a, a mite the other day in yesterday and put a hole in her foot Mm. and uh, she's also got a rash on her belly so I said you know what I'm just gonna let her heal up and I came home for a few days and take it easy over Thanksgiving and let her get better then get back at it after that that was probably a good choice yeah she needed it she's a she's one year old it's her first season and I don't want to put her through the ringer too much if I don't have to so
2: let me let me back up just a little bit. I'm looking at Bill Sugg and I have had the pleasure of duck hunting with him a bunch and I have never been on a duck hunt with him that he didn't go out there and rearrange the decoys at least once and uh, I mean I've I, I mean I'm just being honest he, that's his thing yeah. rearranging the decoys and it a lot of the time it makes a big difference. I will give him that.
5: Well oh for sure.
4: I read something definitely- I, I, I
2: think it was in an article
4: by the late great Wade Boren where he said, Decoy spreads are a lot like a woman putting on her makeup. You have a base foundation, and then you start adding eyeshadow and eyelid liners, et cetera, and <laughs> decoy spreads are sort of like that. That was his point, is you sort of try to create a hole where they are and, and, uh, and where you think the ducks are going to come, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, then, you know, the old saying is, if it isn't broken, don't fix it, but if it isn't working, don't be stubborn. Yeah,
2: so, well, that's a good point. Sure. So Phil, do you, uh, how do you determine how many decoys you
5: need to put out? Are you
2: a guy that likes a few or you like a lot or where do you fall?
5: I normally fall on the side of having as many as I can get to a spot reasonably. Um, so we do a lot, we do a lot of boat hunting here and in, in various boats, we can carry different amounts of decoys or if we have to walk in, you know, of course you you're more limited, um but I try to carry in as many as I can without being a burden. And that might be anywhere from two dozen to a hundred some, depending on what, what exact scenario we're in. Um, but you know, I've, I've seen people say, talk about, and I've heard and seen people talk about trying to go real light on spreads. And I just, I don't know that I would always rather go for the visibility and having them be able to see you more and have an to, to make a a shape that you would want to get them to finish how you want over having just a few, um, for like something different. So I would tend to fall on the, the more, the better to a, to a point. Yeah. Some places you can, some of our, some of our spots, we may not actually put out everything based on the, you know, based on the shape of the hole or the spot we're hunting or whatever it is or the pond or the flue. Um, like you can almost overdo it sometimes and just you clog it up and you, you you choke off ways for them to come into you. And you
4: know, Phil, I don't know how it is in your world. I'm guessing you probably have a little more natural wind than we do. And, and Yeah. yeah, you know, decoy spreads size particularly can be a, to me a lot like that old real estate saying of location, location, location. Well, in our world, regardless of the size, it's motion, motion, motion. And if the wind does it or it happens naturally, that's great. But if it doesn't, you have to add motion, whether that's a jerk, spring, etc. But to me, that's in our world with a lot of calmness, unless you're lucky enough to hunt on that perfect day and windy day, that, that to us is probably the most important
1: thing
5: in our world. I can see that. I mean, we, so I thought, I thought it, I thought it, oh, heck, most of the way up and down the Mississippi and central flyways. Um, and there's definitely a different wind situation up here on the plains versus in the woods or, you know, something like that. Check even just in the Mississippi or the Missouri area where i go probably more than anywhere, um, a, different, a different wind situation. What we always try to do is, you know, we're, we're pretty open typically, maybe some cattail cover, but it's not overly high. So it's easy for the, the wind to rip across the water for us. Um, but we'll always try to put I, my favorite setup in that, in terms of like using the wind uh, for that natural motion is to find a spot where you've, you've got the wind mostly blocked off, but maybe you're quartered to it a little bit. You've kind of got a little spot where the wind rips across. Mm-hmm. And I like to, I like to put a big water decoy out in that. And then a few maybe right up in front of us where it's a little more calm. And let that that side or that hook, whatever you call it, um, that be out in the, the waves and the ripples, kind of looking real lifelike. It seems like those birds always will key in on that and will kind of angle our boat always to make it so that that's where we're, we're planning on them coming in. Even though you've got a pocket maybe off to the other side, but you know they're going to hit right out on that little bit of open water where all that motion is.
3: That makes a lot of sense.
5: Well, I mean, there are days where some of the things that we're hunting are really, really small. So we do use jerk cords depending on what the situation is like. And if it's real deep and it's going to be a disaster for the dogs, then it might not. But otherwise, we will do that as well.
2: So, Phil, how important is it that that a guy make sure he have the very best decoys he can have the most lifelike with. So is there, is there that much pressure on the waterfowl today that it can, it can make a big difference if he's just using old cheap decoys and not, and not paying attention to that?
5: Um, you know, it, it probably matters on the day. There's days where it probably doesn't matter and it's probably places. It doesn't matter, but there's definitely those days where, um, I will say it it would matter, um, in those critical conditions where the weather isn't right or the sun isn't right mm-hmm. and they're able to see better and they are able to pick things out better. Um, I've used, you know, everything from the cheapest decoys to the most expensive decoys. And without a doubt, at the very least, I would rather look at the more expensive nicer looking decoys. And it just feels like you have more confidence when you've got a better looking decoy, one that moves across the water better, it's got the right color schemes, Um, they stick out better on the water i mean you're you're only putting the odds in your favor by using a better looking decoy yeah
2: that that makes a lot of sense and i I would just think that 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 why not why not have the very best that you you can have exactly Mm -hmm. i mean
3: i've I've been on hunts where i think you could put painted milk jugs out there and the ducks would still come in but the majority of the season we're standing around wondering, you know, why aren't they doing this or why aren't they doing that? Well, that's most of the time. And that, you know, why yeah. not have the most realistic thing you can you can put out there? I mean, it, that just makes
5: too much sense. And for the most part, it's not a, a huge uh, dollar investment in it over the top of what a less expensive decoy was. It's just an incremental expense. Of, usually pretty minor in the big terms of a duck hunter's budget um so i yeah i would always use the best that i could whether it's you know whatever the brand was back in the day but now i'm always always using ghg
4: you know it's funny you mentioned budgets uh i was looking at a popular (laughs) catalog recently and and this year because of I'm sure because shortages and supply chain issues that all of us are familiar with in different businesses, but we're all affected by it and inflation. The cost of decoys have gone absolutely through the roof. Uh, and and I do know I'm old enough to remember people that used to do to get to get volume used to paint old Coca Cola cans, I mean Coca Cola bottles, et cetera, and then and build their spread around that just to have a lot. But I don't know that we're going back to that, but somebody told me the other day that six full-bodied goose decoys are somewhere between two two hundred and fifty bucks. So if it's not, we're we're in an unusual time, and I'm sure it won't stay that way. And but the flip side of that is we spend our money where our passion is. So if we if we really want to have the best, I think. I don't think it'll slow down those folks that really want Bobby's mm-hmm. point. Why not?
5: Yeah, no. I, I think we've proven that with multiple products in the outdoor world that have gone the ultra, ultra high end route. Um, yep. And you know, decoys are aren't really an exception. If you're gonna, you're gonna spend the money to, to do the things that you like, and a you few, know, if, if it went ungodly high, that would be one thing, but most of these products are even though they're expensive or still something people are willing to, to drop their harder money for. And that's going to, if it's going to improve their experience in one way or another, they'll, they'll, they'll gladly do it. So. Sure,
2: sure. So Phil, is there some like a, a spread technique or the way you place your decoy or something that you've learned through your, through the, taking uh, all these waterfowl, they, this photography that you do, that something that you could tell our listeners that they could try and say, well, maybe it might work
5: for them. You know, unfortunately, I don't think <laughs> I have any real tricks like that, but I remember listening to uh, an old, um, oh was that? Uh, it was Barney Caleb at a, an old uh, game fair seminar. and someone asked him how to do the most, why he wouldn't make a realistic looking duck spread? He said, "Well, you know, if you want to be realistic, you take about a thousand decoys and you scatter them all over this pond. So that's going to be realistic." Then he said, "But tell me, what? Where? Where are your ducks going to land at? So you don't have a, a pocket for or a, anything made up, made to form to land in." So, I've always thought kind of along those same lines. I, I don't necessarily go for the ultra realistic look. I don't try to make a specific shape. Um, it's all varies on the exact, the way the wind direction is in the hole that we're in, um, but the way they're coming, the way our cover is, you know, that's, that's the fun to me of, of, of duck hunting is it's all just a big puzzle and you've got the sun, the wind, the way the ducks are coming from, uh, visibility, how well your hide is, the way you want to shoot they you're not looking into the sun and where you want the ducks to and how you use your decoys really is of the final piece in that puzzle to positioning them where you where you need them ultimately and it's one of those things that I, I like to sit back and look at every little spot as if it was kind of a, a puzzle you know sometimes we might use uh somewhat of a j hook that people talk about or somewhat of uh the v or the whatever the u that people talk about um but we don't ever set out with a, a mind of like, okay, this is exactly what we're going to. We get in there, we look, we try to cover the space, um, you know, use blocking ends to keep them from going past you, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's a combination of realism. At the same time, you need to make make it work. Like Bill was talking earlier, if it's not working, if they're if they're commit, committing to you and they're not landing exactly where you need them, well, what can we do to position them? So if maybe the 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 takeaway would be don't be afraid to get out and move them and to try different things because it can make a difference. I mean, moving six decoys can be a significant difference in terms of how those birds finish without a doubt.
4: Phil, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you saying that. I think I'm I'm going, since I have gotten a, a horn welcoming like you did, and they put a crown on mine, Mr. Decoy Mover, I'm going to, Take this excerpt the next time we go and get in the blind and <laughs> when the subject comes up, I'm gonna hit the play button.
5: Trial, that,
4: it is a trial and error at times. It, it really is. Because the wind can change while you're out there. The the uh yeah, if the wind the changes forty five change.
5: degrees. Sure. You might have to completely redesign your spread. Yep. Now do it quite that, right. That's probably
3: something we need to discuss, uh, Phil. Are you more of a do you typically set up with the wind directly at your back, or do you do you like a, a crosswind uh, that where you're almost? Sometimes you can take better passing shots with a crosswind. They might, uh but they so. What what's your theory on that?
5: So for me, it kind of depends on we look at it. Like you say we pull in. Said we know there's a spot. So we hunt some big, big reservoirs, um, big lakes that have some backwaters on them and depending on what they're actually we might not even be hunting a spot where the birds are actually using where it's trafficking them and we we say we pull into a hole Say we're we're underneath the ducks here here's where we got to be and we get in there and we think okay so where's the first thing i do is which way is the wind coming from so we know approximately which way we need to set up because no one wants to shoot them coming over their back um or quartering into them that's just a recipe for a disaster um so we're always going to try to do at least a side or over your back. And, but one of the most important things we look at is what kind of cover do we have if we set up with the wind straight at our back? Because that's obviously the ideal scenario where they come in, their breasts are facing, and their feet are kicked down. They're right there. Um, that's my favorite situation if we have the cover that we can pull it off. Now, if you don't have that, I love to do a side or a quartering where they, the focus maybe isn't on us as much, the boat and the calling and, or whatever, you know, whether we're hiding in a boat or standing. That takes a little bit of that pressure off of your hide because they're not keying in straight on as they're coming. So it really depends. In, in a perfect world, yeah, I would have the wind 180 degrees straight over my back, going away every time. Um, but heck, just these last two days, we had a nice, kind of a strong quartering wind over our shoulder, I mean, those birds were finishing at 10 yards, and they had no clue. We stood up to shoot, and they didn't, they didn't know we were there until we pulled the trigger the first time. Oh, wow. Love so, it. Yeah. So in the perfect world, yeah, I would love to, you know, I'd like to have them square it up to me. But if you can do it right and it works out, that quartering situation or even a side shot in a nice little small tight hole is really good too.
2: So let me ask you a quick question. So, in your experience yep. of uh, is it is it uh, necessary that so if you've got a bunch of greenhead decoys out there and if you're wanting to kill some pintails, do you need to have some pintail decoys mixed in in there, or, or you just can you? get just- So I've done a
5: I've done a one eighty on this in the past. I used to think it didn't matter, but the more and more I've been around other species. Um, Gosh, it sure seems to help a ton. Um, I mean, uh, uh, on pintails, gadwalls, divers definitely. Um, we've added some pintails. I think we just added we've added like ten pintails here to our boat. And I mean, whether it was coincidence or whatnot, we've had way more pintails finishing, not just passing, but finishing over the decoys in these last few years since we started doing that than we ever did before combined. And a lot of the time, they're finishing without us even seeing them and calling at them. So I have to think that matters for gadwalls. I would say it matters. I've got, normally I'm not a big gadwall fan, but we get so many of them here in the middle of the season, maybe before we get our mallards, that it's just something, they're fun to go out and hunt, and we will take out a dozen of those, and they sure seem to finish better when there's gadwall decoys. Mm. And in my springtime, in my photo deal, i take out um a lot of diver decoys that's really what sticks around the longest for us and you know i've got cans redheads bluebills, um golden eyes a little bit of everything and if you bunch them up you know i'll have maybe two or three dozen out but if you bunch them up by species it never fails that those birds will land according to the species right in with the ones that you have the decoys out of so I, I can't. I haven't diver hunted as much in the past, to ten years, as I used to. And then, and back in the day when I did, I had pretty much just all all bluebill decoys. But gosh, they sure seem to finish a lot better in the spring than they than they do if they don't have your own their own species right there.
3: That makes right. too much sense. You know, we we talk about diversity all the time with with habitat, wildlife habitat. But just yep. knowing that all that diversity is there, uh, what I would think that would make a duck feel more inclined to, to join in on the fun if there's uh, several different types out there
5: uh, right, and especially their their own their own type I think and I think I think with a mallard spread I think you'll get the interest of most ducks will they'll see the block they'll see duck forms on the water and they'll think okay we're gonna go check it out and you're out, you're gonna get see you and you're gonna get a lot of birds to fly by you. The thing I've noticed that's different is they finish. They actually come in and try to land a lot better when there's actually their own species in mm.
4: Mr. Bill. Well, I will tell you this, Phil. You, you mentioned gadwalls. I don't know how it is in your world, but but in ours, uh, if you could find a way and bottle it up and sell it to get gadwalls, to finish on a consistent basis. You you could oh. you could make a lot of money down in our world because they will circle the, and circle they're the and circle. Most
5: craziest, most <laughs> psychotic doctor for the bomb in from the heavens. Exactly. Like they were, you couldn't stop them, and then wear the hardest you've ever seen them at 60 yards, and then circle for five minutes
4: at least. at least. And then the next
5: block comes. The next block comes and lands so fast you can't hardly shoot at them.
4: They they are the king of the we should have shot them ducks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when they're
5: close. I, I write about them a lot on my Instagram page, and yeah. I post a picture again because they just they oh. oh, they're the most frustrating bird in the world. Well, that
2: that when they uh, w- when they keep circling like that, that's what make m- makes Mister Bill go out there and
5: adjust the decoys. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you wear you wear yourself, yourself out doing that with Gadwell sometimes. I think.
2: Yeah, Mac, you've been the most inquisitive person in the room. Have you got a question?
0: Do you think uh, that the gender of ducks in a grouping uh, matters, and if so, uh, what would that grouping
5: be? (laughs) Um, In a (laughs) decoy spread? Yes. This sounds like yeah. We usually run seventy-five, (laughs) twenty-five. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, you know, I've. It, I don't. I don't think so. No. Um, we we just kind of grab whatever we grab out of the boat and then throw it out. Personally, I like to throw drakes out just because they're drakes and they look better. And, you know, maybe the one thing I would say about that, um, I don't necessarily think it's the gender, but I think it's the appearance of the decoy. You know, a, a Drake Mallard decoy has more weight on it and is going to pop more than a hen. Yeah. If you ever look at those drone photos. Of drakes and hen live mallards, even or decoy spreads from up above a few hundred feet, it's a lot more difficult to see a brown, a brown duck than it is a white duck.
1: Yeah. So good good point.
5: I guess maybe, yes and no. It isn't the gender, but it's the appearance that correlates with the gender. So yeah.
4: It, It does sort of beckon that old question: that decoys are always sold in even pairs. So it, yeah. is, is that because we think they're always paired up? Uh, certainly they're not after they've been shot at a few times in our oh, world. Yeah. But, yeah. If, you know, Matt does bring up a good point. Do more, do single drakes shy away from more drakes or are they attracted to more hens? I mean, who knows? I don't know anybody's ever done research on that. You know, so I, I would
5: say I, in the springtime that's taken to an extreme with, you know, the, the Drakes and the Hens deal, the, the whole courting thing. And even then I'll still run more drakes than hens. Yeah, and right. I feel like I feel like you don't know, that's not a detriment. I don't think that's – at all it hurts you at all to have that.
2: And that's kinda of how it is in nature. I think there are more more drakes that are born. There
5: have been Sure has to be. Yeah, you Good see point. a lot more.
2: Yeah. Well, it depends. So, deadly. Even... You look like you've got a question here. Well, yeah,
3: I, I'm kind of thinking back a long time ago when I was a kid growing up. We didn't have spinning wing decoys and all that stuff, and gosh, we we sure did manage to kill a bunch of ducks back then. And then all of a sudden, I remember. Uh, somebody in my duck camp got this thing called a robo duck and it kind of swam around while its wings were spinning (laughs) and that thing worked great Uh, it seems to me like nowadays if you don't have all that stuff in your spread that you're not going to kill anything so do you think ducks have have evolved to need all of that jazz to you know to want to commit
5: well I can tell you, in the last we we have not used spinning wings in our spreads for probably six or seven years now. Oh wow! And I tell you, I think it's I think it's been to our benefit. Um, there's been a few yeah. times over those years, not many, but a few, where we've been beat out by someone with a big gadget spread. Um, but for the most part, you know, if you can get into a, a spot they want to come in and have a, a good size and a, a good looking spread and be hidden well and call aggressively, um, I feel like, especially at least on mallards, um, I feel like you actually have a, an advantage to not have them because they finish. It seems to us that they finish differently. They finish more. We always call it like softer. They don't. They're not on edge. Because there's not a lot of stuff going on. And they come in and they just finish softer, and then we're able to capitalize on that more because when they're in there at 10 yards, we're able to take really good advantage rather than them skirting out at 30 or 40.
2: Mm, I like um, that 10 yard,
5: the thought of the 10 yard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's nice. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm torn. I mean, I wouldn't say that in, in an ideal world, what, what you would do is you would use a spinning wing. Um, to get their attention when they're a mile out and then stop it immediately. Um, or all the shakers and all that kind of stuff. I and mean, we just don't use those because typically, like we mentioned before, we, we tend to have enough wind or current or something going on that we don't need that. <clears throat> but that, I mean, those, those spinning wings, they definitely attract birds attention from a mile out. Anyone who's seen a, a mallard land in the flu from you know, half a mile away knows what that what they're recreating why a bird would come to it so i i get it and and i think on some of the there's certain ducks that maybe aren't as callable as mallards. that maybe they're probably they're more advantageous to have um but for for a mallard hunter the guy likes to blow a duck call which i love Mm. i think i think you're better off i'm better off without them I, i feel like we made the right choice on that uh-oh. yeah i think and i'd you, like to
2: spend a little time in the blind with it i think he thinks the same way we do yeah
3: and i've, yeah. I've heard of folks uh d- just little minor things like uh squirting something on the decoys that helps them shine a little bit more you know anything like that I, can help uh I think,
5: i've heard that i've never tried it i'd like to
3: um you know like i i know people that if a, the decoy string ends up going over the top of the duck's neck, they'll walk out there and fix it. Oh, no, look,
0: look
2: you're, you're <laughs> looking at the king of and that then, right across the and room. Then <laughs> every,
3: <laughs> and then everybody's got that guy too, where the, you know, the decoy gets shot and it's like, Bill is sticking down in the water.
4: Uh, I actually think the best thing about going out and, and working with your decoys or changing them <laughs> is the motion you create. Cause I don't know how many times just what Dudley said happens, you go out and you stir the water mm-hmm. up and the ripples are there and somebody says, get down. I think that's probably more important Maybe so. than redoing Maybe. your day. I would it's agree. Back to the motion. Yeah. And we do have a lot of calm days here. So motion, is, as I mentioned earlier, is key factor
5: for us. Or you have a black dog swimming around in the decoy spread to go retrieve one and they come and try to land on the dog, that's, basically. That's yeah. correct.
2: Yeah.
3: I used yep. to I used to hunt as a guest at a place outside of Belzoni, Mississippi, back in the 90s, and they would all mount. Uh, this probably isn't OSHA approved, but they would <laughs> mount trolling motors to the front of their permanent blinds, and set up a oh. to, uh, set up a toggle switch. And when they would see ducks, they would turn that switch on, and those trolling motors would make a bunch of movement out in the spread and then when the ducks got closer they would they would turn them off
5: um makes sense.
2: it makes a lot of sense it's phil i i think we'd like to get you to come down here at some point and uh and, and go duck hunting with us. i think you would enjoy watching mr bill change that <laughs> decoy spread two or three times <laughs> in the course let's, of a morning let's do
4: it I'm sort of thinking about a trip to South Dakota after listening to Mr. <laughs> Phil, Bobby. It, it, it tables on that. It does. Look, so hey, like Phil he might have a few more ducks
2: than we do. I think he does. So, uh, Phil, if anybody's if anybody's listening to this, Phil, have you got an Instagram page? I, I know you want to tell Bandage, but what have you got one for your photography?
5: Yeah, I do. That's usually where I, the way I share most of my photos. Um, it's just my name, Phil Conkey photos. I'm um, if you're on Instagram, or I just have a website, conkey.com. So those are the main uh, avenues for getting my photos seen by the world.
2: And Conkey is spelled K-H-A-N-K-E.
5: Oh, right? nope, nope, K-A-H-N-K-E. Okay. Pretty much everybody in the com- pretty much everyone in the company spells my name wrong. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, look, we uh, we think a lot of banded y'all make some great products yeah, that that mean they really are and uh, and we thank a lot of alan hughes and we appreciate what you guys how you guys support mossy oak uh, that's that is for sure and I'll, I'll add a
4: big amen to that
2: it uh it, they just make some they, if you're a waterfowler you gotta have some of their stuff it's it's good
3: oh when it when it starts when the nights start getting cool uh at work there'll be boxes inside the office from the ups man dropping off banded stuff yeah. every year
2: yeah that's right <laughs> phil we appreciate you being here and taking time with us and uh, uh look for your trouble we're gonna send you a gamekeeper bertucci watch so Ooh, i'll be back in, i'll be back in touch i'll get your address i'm gonna put you on the comp list to get our gamekeeper magazine and we'll send you a watch too so we really appreciate you being here with us
5: hey sounds great that was fun Love talking Doc.
2: Thanks, Phil. Yeah. Keep, All ta- right.
5: keep taking those awesome get your, photos. Get your South Dakota applications in, Bill.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Pleasure meeting you. <laughs> yep,
5: you guys too. Talk to you
2: soon. All right, guys. Well, boy, it, it, uh, you know, ducks is just a couple of days away. Mac, I know you're frothing at the mouth, and it's uh, that kind of gets me excited. Just starting to think about it a little bit. We don't yeah. have a lot
3: of water around here right mm. now. It's a fun time of year. Duck
2: hunt in the morning, deer hunt in the afternoon. Yeah, have you got any ducks? Well, you wouldn't tell me if you did, but I'm
4: I'll give you a chance. To... I'm sort of like Tuxa; he'll tell you, which doesn't mean that you can go. You. No, I don't have any
2: water or any ducks. I got one hole's got water,
4: but I hadn't checked it yet. Yeah,
2: how's little Stuttgart looking, Bobby? Yeah, I don't know. I've been so busy doing other things, planting food plots, I hadn't had a chance. So so look why don't we transition uh let's do an ask dudley question i assume you got one and uh mr bill if you'll stay here you'll enjoy this as dudley gets a chance to kind of show his knowledge all right hey dudley nick from alabama so
0: my question is other than putting an electric fence around food plots what are some ways i can improve my habitat for deer and turkey in conjunction with my livestock herd could that be saving uh it's nick clark from Auburn, alabama <laughs> all
3: right good nick clark Auburn. all right well nick that's a really good question and there's nick that's a really good question and and two things come to mind you you know i love planting trees i also like improving the overall habitat so we'll talk about trees for now You've already mentioned electric fence. A lot of cattle guys have electric fence available. So you could always fence off two or three acres and fill it up with trees and keep the cows out of it for five or six years while they get established. Um, You can also, uh, and this is a little bit of extra work, but you know, cattle do need shade trees. So, and you're also wanting to feed the wildlife, but it's a little extra time and money but if you can get uh, like some welded wire fencing and maybe about three T-posts, you can plant your tree, use your tree tube, do everything you normally would. But when you're done, fence it off. And, and I mean fence it off pretty wide because their hooves can compact the soil. I would say about a six- or seven-foot diameter cage around each tree. And, you know, that's a lot of work, but uh, if you want to have cows and trees, you got to put in the work. Uh, If you were to just leave that tree tube there without a cage, they're probably going to try to chew on it or scratch their back on it and and end up tearing your trees up. So doing that big cage around every tree is very important, and you have to secure it with some T-posts. Otherwise, they'll knock it over. Um, And then another thing... With cattle, there's some people in our area uh, around West Point uh, that do both. Um, There's a new technique out there called rotational grazing, where you're always moving electric fences around everywhere. And instead of having these huge areas or, or paddocks or pastures where the cows just stay out there all the time and eat the grass down to the ground, and then they have to be fed you're moving, moving them from small area to small area. And you're, you're actually mimicking what bison used to do a long time ago on the landscape. So uh, you, you put the cows in one spot for a few days. They trample all the plants. They eat. Uh, they go to the bathroom. Um, and then you, so you're leaving fertilizer. You're disturbing the soil. And then you're quickly moving them to another area. Sometimes you make it bigger. Sometimes you make it larger, um, and you just you keep them on the move. And it actually greatly improves the soil health and fertility by using that method, rotational grazing. And uh, you end up with a lot of good beneficial plants. You know, clovers persist really well with that that technique other wild, uh, you know, broadleaf forbs that, that deer munch on, uh, lots of, you know, insects and stuff for the turkeys too. And so uh, I'm, we're seeing that more and more people are able to, to manage for both and, and do a darn good job at it. So check into that rotational grazing and then that little trick about putting the fencing around the trees to get them going, going works.
2: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. There you go,
3: Dudley. That's
4: a, that's a fun subject.
2: <clears throat> yeah. Well, so this is the time, of, uh, Mr. Bill, you got your hand raised over there. Huh? I,
4: I do. If I could ask Dudley yeah, a question. We had an associate of our business and friend that, that sent us a willow tree okay. honoring Tim Anderson, who yes. many of you know passed away several months ago. But he sent it to us in honor, and I've kept it alive, kept it watered, but Tox and I were talking the other day about a a good place to plant it. We're maybe behind our office or at one of the lakes. My question is, does it require a constant source of moisture or water? You see most, we equate willow trees on lake banks, pond banks. Absolutely.
3: Itself, so do you think,
4: I assume it's a weeping willow? It is a weeping is willow. more of like a landscape That's type right. of tree. And I honestly can say, I didn't know that that was an expression of, of empathy or sympathy in times of, of loss, but that's why it was sent. Yeah. And very nice gesture on the people that sent it, and I want to honor that by putting it somewhere where it's got a good chance
3: Putting it in the right place where it'll last a long time so right. we can see it and think about our buddy Tim. There you go. A lot of folks plant them on the edge of a pond. You know, it provides great shade uh, and and we just kind of associate a, a weeping willow with, with near the pond. They can actually survive on a dry upland site. They have a very vigorous root system that will spread out. It, it may not grow quite as fast. Uh, but, but, yeah, they can, they can handle growing just about anywhere. But ideally, I would probably put it near a pond um, where it can tap into some moisture and it'll have the best chance at
2: surviving and thriving so thank you good well, question with the way that the, the the new building then there floods I would think the back of that <laughs> building might be a pretty good little <laughs> sp- spot there
3: yeah it can find some good moisture down there or the little pond
2: back back behind the old biologic warehouse something you know, somewhere there around, you go uh, so. Well, look, Mr. Bill, we're glad you joined us today. And this is the time of the podcast. We're kind of wrapping up where I kind of look at everybody and I say, what did we learn? And I'll go first. I think what I learned the most is it probably, Mr. Bill's probably doing a good thing when he goes out there and adjusts those decoys. He, <laughs> his heart's in the right spot and he's he's trying to trying to help the hunt out. And uh, so I'm going to quit being kind of as critical of that as I have might have been in the past. Well, that's a good point. Um. You can
3: either sit there and twiddle your thumbs when the ducks aren't flying around, or, or you can get out there and walk around, warm up some, kick the mud up, make it look more natural, and that next flight that comes through may just fly through close enough.
4: Bobby, I, I appreciate your sentiment, but I do know that either Toxie or Lanny will pick up that
0: banner and carry it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it won't be dropped, that, that, that's for sure. So. So, Mac, what about you, man? Hopefully you learned something.
0: I did. I I, I think that uh, the diversification of your, your decoy spread uh, makes sense, and that's something that you don't really see a lot of. I mean, you, you see, I mean, at least here in Mississippi, you know, a bunch of mallards, drakes, and hens, and then some gadwalls, and maybe a couple wood ducks. But but really, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a, a pintail uh, in the spread, and, and sometimes on bluebird days you see them flying. So, I mean, I think that would be a good addition. To yeah, well, the we all want to
2: kill them when we see them all get excited and if we don't have any any dekes out there you might you, you might be hurting yourself but that's a good thing to learn I, I, I noticed that too and I, I also think that well, like he was saying uh, uh, some of these higher end decoys might as well have the very best I, I mean something that you're going to all this trouble to be out there let's look I think you need the best decoys you can get and yeah hope,
3: that makes sense as expensive as the shot shells are and fuel and time uh, you know Why not make your equipment more reliable, you know, use more reliable equipment that's more realistic?
2: Sure. So, Mr. Bill, uh, look, it's hard to think that you might have learned something, but was there anything you came away from this? I wake up a new world every day, (laughs) buddy. I did learn something. I learned that
4: Phil is a very knowledgeable and very passionate waterfowler, and it's always good to learn how other people do things. We learn, hopefully, and we get learning. We're down under the ground, hopefully. And I also learned what I already know that when it comes to trees, Mr. Dudley is the king, and I always enjoy <laughs> listening to him and his knowledge of that. I'm amazed. Well, thank you, so he, I, he and I appreciate y'all including me today. It's been very enjoyable.
2: Yeah, we, thank we you. yeah, thank you for being here. We look, uh, we it, we uh, we. You know, there's a lot of people that we need to invite in here because this company is full of people that have a, a, a very passionate about the outdoors. Uh, that's kind of like a a prerequisite almost and uh, there's nobody more passionate about duck hunting than uh than, oh you know. there's a lot of co- i have a lot of company out there. you do have a lot of company but you know, you're, and, you're and so many
4: people i know you've probably covered it but so many people don't realize how passionate taxi and neil and daniel and the family is about waterfowl. I mean, You're works, right. Everybody he just assumes uh, turkeys number one. Turkeys number one. That's right. But uh, we all know how hard he works at it, and how much preparation. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he takes pride. Yes, he likes to go and have a great hunt with friends, and and, and, he, and he's very generous. But he likes doing everything it takes for the ducks. And, and true conservationist when it comes to waterfowl, really is. Yeah, I've watched it for years and years and years. Real, yeah. I would
3: venture to say that he puts more time into ducks than any of his other habitat fun. He's
2: he's always out there checking the yeah, checking yeah. those Bad food plots. Yeah, you're probably, you're probably right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Well, look, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, are we good on everything, Mike Richie? Are you look, uh, wait, wake up, Richie, I'll go over there, please. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Do you know Richie actually fell asleep during a podcast about three weeks ago? Mm. We had to wake him up. So. Anyway, well, uh, look here. We appreciate it. I'm, I'm trying to look at my board. You know, guys, the TV show's on Tuesday nights, 8 o'clock, on the Outdoor Channel. Please watch that. And uh, and, and please, we Cuz was on Rick and Bubba's podcast this past week. So, guys, if y'all get a chance to go listen to that, it's really good. Yeah, that was a good one. It was. So, uh, look, we appreciate everybody uh, listening to us, and why don't you say goodbye, Dudley?